bringing you some baseball history yes, we're bi-weekly baseball history podcast where the uh, story receiver does not know what the storyteller is about to tell them that's right and that's you this week that is me i'm back edzie's back yeah it's been a busy uh, little bit of time but uh, i'm back here and uh yeah but before i start telling the story make sure you follow us on twitter at doing baseball and instagram at doing dot baseball uh, find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. If you're on Apple Podcasts, give us a review, maybe a rating or something. Can't they rate us on Spotify? Uh, no, that's not a thing. Really? Yeah, it's not a thing. All right. I wish it was, but it's not. All right. Just listen to us there. Yep. Well, give us a review, give us a rating, whatever. Tell us what you think. Tell us if you have story episode ideas. Yeah, that would be great. Uh, we, we're going to hopefully do some guests soon, too. I think we, we need some guests. Mm-hmm. We're coming up on 50, so... Yeah, we're recording a couple at the time, um, so, you know, this one and the next one, but I think after that, let's let's aim for a couple guests. Okay, let's try. All right. Let's try to do that. Well, I am ready to sit back and hear this story. Okay, ready. Well, you can sit back, because I am back after a very busy six weeks. Mm -hmm. I sold my house. Mm -hmm. I uh, moved back home Mm -hmm. for now, Mm -hmm. and I'm looking for the next adventure, but I've taken the time to put together this story for you and the listeners, Sean. You ready? Uh, This story is sort of in the same breath as the tale you told us a few weeks ago about Tom Burns. Mm -hmm. Oyster. Yeah, Oyster, as we all now know him. Mm -hmm. Uh, The reason I compare our subject of today's story to Oyster is not because he was an especially skilled batsman from the early days of baseball history, not because he was an abrasive human being, not because he had an unusual nickname but simply because it was one particular day of his baseball career which cemented his place in baseball history. Chicken Wolf. No. No. (laughs) Imagine, though. No, it's not him. Not yet. Not yet. This man was rather pedestrian Uh in what was uh, a long yet rather unremarkable career, but one day in 1933, he took a bite into his figurative piece of baseball history's pie. Oh, all right. So it's a little later. Yes. A little yes. later than, than I thought. Yes. Oh. But July 11th, 1893, Clarence Blethen was born in Dover, Foxcroft, Maine. Have you heard of him? Who? Clarence Blethen. Blethen? Blethen. How do you spell that? B-L-E-T-H-E-N. No. Okay. Well, Clarence Blethen was born on the Dover side of town. And Dover was a town on the south side of the Piscataki River. Right. Piscatakis? Pis- I, I don't know. You just started saying piss. Piscatakis? Piscatakis River in central Maine, which boasted two sawmills among its industries. And if you've been to Maine, you know all about the trees in that area. Mm-hmm. We've been through that area. It's beautiful. Yeah, very nice. Uh, by 19, or sorry, by 1859, the population of Foxcroft was 1,045. And in addition to the two sawmills, there was one shingle mill, one carding machine, one carriage builder, one chair manufacturer, 
one tannery, one fork maker, two pail makers, one machinist, and a sash door and blind factory. Okay. So who's the most important? <laughs> I don't know. That's probably the fork guy, if yeah, you ask I'm me. Chairs, man. Chairs. Chairs. Chair, like, fork, you can eat with your hands. We don't necessarily well, that's need true. forks. Knives are more important than forks. True, and as they say, uh, a, a, a sit is the great leveler. There you <laughs> As they say. Yeah. Uh, in 1866, the Hughes and Son Piano Manufacturing Company was established and ran until it closed in 1921. So, I'm just trying to illustrate that it was a growing industrial town at the end of the 19th century when Clarence was born. Also, here's a fun fact about uh, Dover Foxcroft. Currently, it is home to the main Whoopie Pie Festival. Absolutely. It's my favorite. I go every year. <laughs> yes. An annual one-day event which takes place in late June each year. Yeah. yeah I'm it's going. coming up. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm on my I, I way. saw you had so your I... tickets outside. Yeah, exactly. Yes. It started in, and as you know, yeah. since you're going, we'll it's... Be fine. I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, I, I, you'll explain to them. Obviously. I was going to say, I'm... it started in 2009 to honor the Whoopie Pie, which became the official state treat of Maine in 2013. And of course, as you can hear now sean knows yeah, what a whoopie pie is but if you're yeah. wondering what it's a whoopie pie a delicious is delicious mixture of yes. um uh, well you know. let me finish it yeah, for you here you sean exactly. the whoopie pie according to wikipedia anyway is uh, alternatively called a black moon yep gob black and white bob or bfo yeah well the or, bfo they, they we hate the bfo people yeah well you, you're not a, you, you don't like the big fat oreo people I mean, yeah, but they're just, just bobs are so much better. Or, <laughs> True. Yeah, BFOs, I mean. Yeah, True. And the Dark Moon, was that the other one that we all. Black Moon. Black Moon. Yeah. Black so, Moon, yes. I mean, better, better names. Yeah. BFW or whatever you said. <laughs> yeah. BFO. Yes, BFO. Uh, it's an American baked product that may be considered either a cookie pie, sandwich, or cake. It is made of two round mound-shaped pieces of usually chocolate cake or sometimes pumpkin, gingerbread, or other flavored cakes. Yeah. With a sweet, creamy filling or frosting sandwiched between them. Absolutely. Right. So, uh, you know that. And the you frosting is honestly, and you got to go to Donna. <laughs> Donna's just, got, Donna's the, best got the frosting. And it, you, I, I mean, fuck pumpkins. We're going gingerbread. You know what? I yeah? don't care. You're the gingerbread man? Yeah, well, either way. <laughs> okay. Make it out to, to wherever the, the Foxborough, Maine. Foxworth. Foxworth, Maine. Yeah, Foxworth. <laughs> Dover Foxworth, actually. Uh, Foxcroft, sorry. Foxcroft, forgive me. Uh, okay, so anyway, let's get back to Clarence here. So Clarence Bleden's mother, Lulu, and his father, Willard, a mill mechanic, were of Welsh and English descent, but considered themselves Mainers. Clarence's father later worked in one of the sawmills in 1910 and as a repairman in a woolen mill in 1920. The Bleden's also had a daughter, Clara, who was three years younger than Clarence. So, you know, not a lot of uh, variety with the name there, no. right? Clarence and Clara. Clara but... Yeah, yeah, So, anyway. They're creative people. They're mill workers. That's Salt true. That's true, yeah. Main people. Yeah. I love them and their, their dark moons. Yeah. <laughs> their black moons. Black moons. <laughs> <laughs> Clarence attended high school at Higgins Classical Institute and then the University of Maine on an athletic scholarship for a year and a half. But he never graduated, 
due to blood poisoning. Yeah, well, <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. He was beset by the poisoning in his left leg after he was spiked by the cleats of another player while he was participating in a football game. Ooh. Yeah, so he got stepped on by some rusty cleats, I guess, and yeah. got blood poisoning, and then, uh, as you do, you quit school. Yep. When you get blood poisoning. Yeah, that's it. So uh, Clarence, No more learning. That's right. <laughs> Nothing to be done now. <laughs> so Clarence quit school and went to work and was likely destined for a long career in the mills like his father before him had baseball not given him an opportunity to see more of the country. Thank God for baseball. Thank because goodness. Because they were just like, well, you got blood poisoning, kid. <laughs> Tough break. Go to the mill. Yeah, you're stuck no in the No more middle. education. Yeah. <laughs> that's were, the end of the line. End of the line. <laughs> You and your poison blood report to the mill. Yep. Well, that's pretty much what happened. So Clarence quit school and went to work. Okay. Blah, yeah. blah, I've skipped that part Baseball. over here. Yeah. So he, uh, yeah. So he, but he does quit school and he does take a job at one of the mills for a little bit anyway. Yeah. So that's where Clarence Bleden would meet Mary Pembroke, where she worked as a spooler, spooling away, I guess, yeah. whatever that means. Megan spools, man. <laughs> yep. So Mary and Clarence get married on August 12th, 1914, and they eventually had three children, Arnold, Merle, and Raymond. All right. Well, they got a little bit more creative. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. There's three different letters, even. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So Clarence took a job as a framer for the American Woolen Company in Foxcroft across the river from Dover. And in 1917, at the age of 24, married with two children at the time he registered for the draft. But he was not chosen. For probably obvious reasons. Well, yeah. He's lucky, but he's still... Yeah. He's like 24, so yeah. he's still fighting age. Well, yeah, but... But he's got yeah. a family. And... Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm kind of implying. But yeah. uh, So, Bleden played semi-pro ball in Maine while working at American Woolen, drawing $15 a game, playing third base to supplement his pay at the mill of 40 cents an hour. Advancing in semi-pro circles, he took a new job painting railroad coaches with the Bangor and Aristook Railroad. With his new gig, Bleden was paid 75 cents an hour and also offered $18 a game. After a year with the railroad, he was lured back to American Woolen with an offer of 90 cents an hour to work with packing crates as a shipping clerk and an even $20 per ball game. Quote, it wasn't much alongside Bath Bruce's $80,000 a year, he told the Saturday Evening Post feature writer Ted Shane in 1941. Quote, but it wasn't peanuts either. It paid for diapers, and we needed diapers about that time. So, if, if you don't know, like, company teams were, like, commonplace at this team's, at and this he, time. So I find it so ridiculous. So he was making, like, 40 cents an hour and got paid $15 to play a baseball game. Yeah, that's right. So, He's do getting the like, math on that. That's, like, a week. That's more than a week's... Yeah, it'd be six. A forty-hour week at forty cents an hour is sixteen dollars a week. Exactly. Yeah, so he'd be getting his full weekly salary on Sunday to play the baseball game. That's yeah. Yeah. That's a wonderful incentive to. (laughs) Yeah. I would love that. Mm -hmm. And like I was saying, the company teams were a common thing at this time. Like every company would have had a team, and you would have played like within like a league on on the weekends with with the other companies in town. So we should get back to that. No, exactly. That would be amazing. It's just like a, a a big company saying, best nine of you get yeah. an extra thousand bucks on the weekend if you want to play. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That'd be <laughs> fucking awesome. Yeah. 
So, at the age of 26, uh, Clarence finally became active in organized baseball, and he was lucky to have a second chance at it because he was apparently spotted in 1913 by Earl Pottinger. Let me get to the next page here. Earl Pottinger. Earl Pottinger of the Worcester Busters. Worcester. Worcester Busters. Worcester Busters. Who were the champions of the New England League and who had come through Dover on a barnstorming tour. They were playing a doubleheader, and Worcester had to lend the Dover team a player for the second game, with le- which left them short a third baseman. And who was in the stands that day? Clarence was in the stands, and the locals coaxed him into putting on a Worcester uniform. And he impressed Pottinger. All right. When others around the league heard Pottinger sing his praises, Blethen was offered salaries as high as $200 a month. Pretty good. Mm-hmm. And it was done that by more than one team in the Eastern League, but he stayed in Maine, something he later regretted. And he regretted it until six years later, when the still persistent Pottinger finally secured him a baseball job in Frederick, Maryland. And this time he took the offer, but Bledham was paid $185 a month. So, not 200 but still, but still. still pretty good. So, uh, early on in his career... Bledin acquired the unusual nickname of Climax. <laughs> yeah. You want to know why? I Yes, definitely. It's probably not as weird as you think. No. With the given names Clarence and Waldo, his teammates decided he needed another handle. And Clarence had chewed tobacco since his public school days. Yep. And his, un, and his usual brand was Climax. All right. So the name stuck and... That's the way he even signed his name when cashing checks. Orgasm cigarettes. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Come and grab your smokes and all your tobacco needs. (laughs) You're gonna. You're gonna come. come. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. So he just—he's a fan of a tobacco brand. Yeah, called Climax. Yeah, and they just named it after him, and it stuck. And he even signed his signature that way. That's amazing. Yeah, (laughs) if you're at that bank, you have no idea what. What? I thought your name was Clarence. (laughs) Nah, it's Climax. So the five foot eleven, hundred and sixty-five pound right-hander began with the Frederick Hustlers of the Class D Blue Ridge League in nineteen twenty, pitching and playing the outfield. Pitching was something he'd done back in his school days, but not since. Yet the day came when manager Buck Ramsey needed a pitcher and Climax volunteered. He eventually found a spot in the rotation, playing in the outfield on days he wasn't pitching, and because of his breaking ball away to left-handers, uh, it was often effective when he was in the outfield and a left-hander came up, he and the pitcher would switch positions. Okay. After he retired the batter, he and the pitcher turned outfielder would switch back. That's genius. Can you do that still? Are you allowed to do that? I don't know. I don't know if a pitcher can be... Re- like, but if like if he's not taken out of the game, exactly. like why wouldn't you be why able to defense, yeah, defensive uh, switch, yeah, no, right? You're, you're catching me off guard with this, and I should know this, but know. I'm, I'm thinking it's fine. Yeah, it's just odd. It's just never done. So. Yeah. But this is the days of the change pitcher, right? Yeah, so exactly. Like, um, okay, so he always hit fairly well, and he averaged over 300 from 1920 through 1923 with the Hustlers. Twice he had games where he went 5 for 5. His pitching records for the seasons, respectfully, were 9 and 7, 9 and 3, 
13 and 7 and 8 and 9 averaging a 1.16 whip over that time so he's doing pretty good his mm-hmm. record's kind of you know there's, there's a couple years where it's really good and the rest of the time it's just kind of 500 but anyway uh also just to add in here one day on the mound he won both games of a double header there you go <laughs> from hanover 3-1 and 3 nothing but it was Bleden's 1922 season that first caught the eye of the Boston Red Sox. Uh, it was at, only after his disappointing 1923 campaign, though, that he was given his first look at Major League action. Boston scout Eddie Hawley recommended to pl- club president Robert Quinn that the Red Sox purchase Bleden from the Frederick Club, and so it was on August 8th. So he joined the Red Sox. And he had his debut about five weeks later, on September 17th, 1923, in the first game of a Fenway Park doubleheader against the Chicago White Sox. Boston was losing 6-1 after eight innings, as White Sox pitcher Sloppy Thurston was not sloppy at all and was cruising to a complete game victory. (laughs) Sloppy versus Climax. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's one of my favorite names that I've read in all this research so far, Sloppy Thurston. Uh, Manager Frank Chance sent Shano Collins in to pinch hit for the second Boston pitcher of the day, and then Bleden took over pitching duties in the ninth, ninth, facing four batters and walking the first one, who he mistakenly recalled nearly 20 years later as Bib Falk. And Bib Falk was on the White Sox, but, but wasn't. He, w- he wasn't in the lineup that day. Okay. Um, anyway, so here's the story that uh, Bladen misremembered and told the story late- years later. Quote, Bib looked twice as big as anything I'd ever seen in my life before, so I walked him on four pitched balls. <laughs> that's, a, that's a bold, <laughs> bold entry. It's like, I was scared of this guy. So I walked him. Yeah. Uh, quote, he immediately tried to rattle me by stealing. So he's like really misremembering, I think. Yeah. I tried to look up the summary of this game, but you can find the box score and stuff, but, but like the actual yeah. play-by-play is, uh, yeah. is not there. Um, but Val Pichinich, Pick, Pichinich my yeah. catcher, threw him out. I took a fresh true chew and got the next three. <laughs> Pulled out my climax. Yeah, and got another pack of climax out, chewed it up, and got the next three. The next day, the score was once again White Sox 6, Red Sox 1, and Bletham was called in. He pitched the final three innings of the game and faced the minimum nine batters, but was touched up for his first hit. But altogether, another good outing. Yeah, so he's, he's a mop-up guy at this point. Yeah, but he's, you know, he's coming in and having success, getting, getting the, you know, the, the quick outs and getting through the innings. But uh, Bletham wasn't feeling as good about himself after his third outing. This time, September 21st, against the Tigers, he was called upon in the third inning. Kurt Fullerton had already been charged with seven runs, and Red Sox manager Frank Chance had seen enough of his starter. But Bleden wasn't much better. He gave up eight runs, though only five of them were earned. In six and two-thirds innings, he walked two and gave up 12 hits. And Mitch and mixing in a wild pitch in a balk as well, and the Tigers won the ball game fifteen to six. Yeah, but what are yeah, you gonna do? What are you gonna do? What You're a mop up guy. You go in and you're down seven runs and yeah, you give yeah. up. It's hard to get like amped up for a situation well, like that. Yeah, exactly. But he also he saved the bullpen. He just pitched the rest true. of the game. That's true. There we go. That's true. That's a that's a good positive spin. There you go. Off. Yep. Don't get down on yourself, Bledy. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're gonna get down. 
On September 25th, he pitched four innings and gave up three runs to the St. Louis Browns. The last of his five games for the Red Sox, all of which were in front of the Fenway Park fans, was against the Yankees. This was the game when Chance displayed a bit of sadism, leaving the starter Howard Emke to suffer through an 11-run sixth inning before departing the game in a 17-3 hole. But again, like it's an era where you just you don't have like the bullpens like we have today. So it's no, kind of just no. like, you know, you have, well, he's sucking today. So, yeah, you have six or seven pitchers. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So uh, and uh, to Emke's credit, he'd thrown a no hitter just three weeks earlier. Yeah. So I guess the, but he'd, the opponents were run, due. 17. Runs. 17 to three. Yeah. yeah wow. Yeah. Uh, Climax entered to throw the last three innings and allowed seven more runs. Oh. Six earned. It was a 24-4 Yankees win. New York's 30 hits in one game set an American League record. Jesus. Yeah. So, Bledon had pitched in only five games, but he faced Ty Cobb, Harry Heilman, Lou Gehrig, and Babe Ruth. When Climax asked Chance how to pitch to Ruth, Chance said, quote, shut your eyes and lay the ball in there. <laughs> <laughs> but Ruth popped up, the only out of a five for six game. There we so go. So that's lucky there. Uh, Bledin finished 1923 with a 7-1-3 earned run average in 17 and two-thirds innings. He trained with Boston in the spring of 1924 at their San Antonio spring training base. The Red Sox had a new manager, and Bledin this time was one of four Red Sox pitchers placed on option in mid-March with the San Antonio Bears, and Bledin began to play in the Class A Texas League. Bledin threw a spitball, which had been banned in the major leagues, but it was still allowed in the Texas League. That doesn't make <laughs> so, I know. It's basically been like, at right, AAA, they're allowed to use the sticky stuff still. Major yeah, leagues yeah. were cracking yeah, down. that's right. That's exactly what was going yeah. on. Uh, so that year, Bledham pitched for three teams, the Greenville Spinners of the Sally League, the South Atlantic League, mm -hmm. and the Little Rock Travelers of the Southern Association being the other two, uh, with the Texas team, obviously. And then he combined for a 10-10 and 10 record that year. And at this point in his career, Clarence was a single man once again. What? Yep. Surprise. Surprise. There was apparently some marital difficulties at the time he left Dover. And joined the club in Frederick, where he uh, got paid one hundred and eighty-five dollars a month. Mm -hmm. So you know that was probably some possible motivation, because like, I mean, he was making quite a bit playing for the um, that the the Worcester. No, was it Worcester? I forget what uh, the last company that he paid played oh, for, oh, but he was getting 20, yeah. 20 bucks and yeah. ninety cents an hour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which would be quite a bit more totaled up than. Than one hundred eighty-five dollars a month just yeah, to play true. baseball, right? That so, is true. So he dipped for quite a bit less money, probably, and because this is probably why. That's apart. right. Yeah, okay. Yes. Yes. All right. All right. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. After that, his first wife Mary moved to Dexter, Maine, and married a machinist named James P. McKenney. So she just she just liked the 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 blue the blue, blue collar color. guys, you know. Yeah. Uh, and uh, McKenney also adopted the couple's three boys. So. So he's just so he's just on his own now. Yeah. Oh. Well. Yeah. But he married again okay. on September sixteenth, nineteen twenty four, which mm -hmm. is the first anniversary of his uh, debut, to Garrett Ray Bennett, and the two of them spent the rest of their lives together. 
So it, it worked out for all of them. There we go. In, in the love aspect, anyway. Yep. Uh, in 1925, the Red Sox still had a string on Blethyn. The Mobile Bears, being a farm club of the Boston team, again, he split the season one and three with Mobile, but then a 16 and five season for the Macon Peaches in the Sally League. So. Had a pretty good year there in 1925. Mm-hmm. And in 1926 was a year that he entered a stretch in which he won a lot of games, although not likely due in any part to his pitching. He just was pitching was pitching for he some good lucky. teams. Yeah, he was on some good teams. Yeah. Because uh, he went 19-13 uh, in 1926 uh, and 25-11 and in 1927 with Macon. But his ERA, far from spectacular, was 4.56. Yeah. So, so he was pitching decent on well-hitting teams, right. or just he was getting lucky. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, after that, he spent six seasons with the Atlanta Crackers and had two more 20-win years, 1929 and 1931. His best season overall was 1929 when he was 22-11 and 11, with his career-best 3-1-1 ERA and his 313 innings of work. So pretty good year. Mm-hmm. The most any of uh, his long 313 career. 313 innings. Yep. 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 <laughs> yep. I'll take it. Yep. It was uh, at the end of that year that Climax had another shot at the majors playing for Brooklyn Robbins manager and friend of the show, yep. Wilbert Robinson. Oh, yes. Uncle Wilbert. Yeah, Uncle Wilbert. Yeah. Unfortunately for Clarence, though, Robinson assigned him mostly as a personal batting practice pitcher for Babe Herman. There we go. Who had held out and come to spring training late. <laughs> He's like, come on up, uh, Clarence. What, what, are we, what we are we doing, spot. coach? What are it's we doing? Like, well, we're you just uh, pitching batting practice here for Babe. Babe's late. All right. We need to get him caught up. Okay, so, so I'll do that. So you and get then your... I'll pitch in the games as well, right? Probably not. Probably not. All right. Uh, well, gonna, we need a spot for Babe here, so uh, <laughs> maybe you could just get out to the mound there and throw, do some soft toss to warm up a little bit, and then you could get on the mound and uh, uh, really throw it in here for Babe. Babe. Uh, so this is Clarence. He's going to be your batting practice picture, and that's it. That's it. Nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> so you just hired me because because I can get hit. That's enough, Clarence. That's enough, <laughs> climax. Uh, <laughs> You haven't heard my climax yet. (laughs) So on September 25th, he came into the second game of a doubleheader in Philadelphia's Baker Bowl, facing two batters in the bottom of the seventh inning. So he does get in. He does get in there. He walked one, then secured the last out of the inning. The next day was his last day in the majors. Jesus. (laughs) He closed out a game. The Phillies won. 12-3, 12 to 3, pitching the last inning in two thirds and allowing the last two Phillies, the last two of the Phillies' 12 runs. Mm-hmm. So he comes in at 10 to 3 and leaves 12 to 3. <laughs> his statistical line for his two stints in the big leagues was 0 and 0 with a 732 earned run average. He walked 10 and struck out two in 19 and two thirds innings. He posted zeros as a batter in six at bats. In the field, though, he was perfect, handling four chances without an error. His major league days were behind him. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but you said something about 1933. I know. I was just going to say, so like now, so you're, now just, you're, you're probably wondering why I'm even telling you the story. Well, yeah, Clarence it just Blatton. sounds like a, a washout from the 20s. That... Yeah, it's just like a dude who had a 20-year minor league career or whatever. Yeah. And... Uh, 
His major, yeah. So, I mean, he didn't have an outstanding career. Even in the minors, he was never particularly great. Not bad, but by no means a stud pitcher. He didn't win any titles. He never changed the game. But after three years in Class A with the Atlanta Crackers, he was turned loose to join the Knoxville Smokies, where he would remain until 1935. So he's got another couple years going on here. And as I alluded to earlier, it was one particular day in 1933 that old Clarence Climax Blethen sunk his teeth into history. And I say teeth. Did he eat a ball? Because if you remember, (laughs) I also said he was a chewing tobacco user who had chewed the stuff since his days in public school. Okay. Right? So, like, we're probably talking... You know, 1935, he's like 40 now, 25 years or so, maybe more. Maybe more. Yeah, so a habit which uh, an article in the Associated Press reported had destroyed his molars to the point that he required a set of dentures by the age of 36. Oh my God, just stop. Right? No, I'm like yelling at him. Yeah, (laughs) so he's got no teeth back here, Yeah. right? Okay, so some said that he had his teeth removed so he would look more menacing. What? <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's just a report. <laughs> Ted Shane's article in the Saturday Evening Post I talked about earlier said he had them removed so he could save his pitching arm. I don't know what the fuck that means. but You see that guy right there, that Clarence guy? <laughs> took his teeth out to make look make himself look more tough. <laughs> I heard it was because it helped his arm. <laughs> Just ridiculous rumors. <laughs> in either case, Brelin cemented his place into oddball history with a play on June 6, 1933. What the fuck? During the fourth inning, Blethen bunted, and the play was close enough that he was forced into evasive action at first base. <laughs> Blethen had placed his false molars into the hip pocket of his pants to protect them, I suppose. The slide at first had somehow twisted his false teeth in his pocket and then clamped them down, taking a bite out of a, quote, tender part. (laughs) The Knoxville Journal attested that Bledon spent much of the rest of the game making expressions of great pain and rubbing certain portions of his body that this column chooses not to mention, end quote. (laughs) Did you just? Tell us a story about a guy that ended up biting himself in his own ass. So Clarence Climax bled him with his play sustained what, in my opinion, is the strangest injury in baseball history because he is the only player and likely the only person to ever hurt themselves by taking a bite out of their own ass. <laughs> oh my god, I'm sorry if I ruined your climax. <laughs> <That's okay. laughs> You sort of did, but it was great anyway. <laughs> you're, you're glad. You're glad I, I, oh my uh, god, I couldn't believe. I'm like, there has to be more meaning. Yeah. It's so stupid. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a pointless career until like just this random this guy, day. This guy like probably has family that doesn't know who he is and we know who <laughs> yeah, Exactly, he is. yeah. <laughs> But like I say, he had a 20-year career. His minor league totals were 257 wins and 193 losses and an overall 342 ERA. The plate, he was 265. Yeah. You know? Yeah, he was was decent. He wasn't major league good, but he was good. Yeah. 
So by 1939, Bledin was 45, playing semi-pro ball on Sundays again in Frederick, mm -hmm. pitching and playing outfield. He'd given up chewing tobacco years earlier, though. <laughs> He's like, oh, I don't want to bite my own ass again. <laughs> this really woke me up. Yeah, this woke me up that chewing tobacco came back and bit me in the ass, so I decided to quit. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, except during games. When he found that he needed to have a little bit of the edge. <laughs> that doesn't count. I that know. doesn't count. It's like being like, I'm sober, but not on the weekends. Yeah. <laughs> Just when I'm at a bar, that's yeah. the only time I drink. He <laughs> uh, hit 364 in the games. He was back at third base. And in 1940, the MJ Grove Lime Company offered him a job as a department foreman as long as he agreed to manage and play for the company team. He was three for two for Lime or for Grove Lime. Both losses were five hitters. He hit 376. And in the 50s and 60s, Bledin served as the executive vice president of the National Little League in Frederick for at least 15 years, until a day in 1965 when, at age 72, he hurt his arm, quote, showing the youngsters how to slide. <laughs> he must have put it in like a shoulder yeah. pocket or something this time. <laughs> I bit my shoulder. Yeah. <laughs> well, Clarence Climax Bledin died of cancer in Frederick on April 11th, 1973. All right, so he's 80. Yeah. yeah, so he made her pretty good. Well, fuck. But yeah, that's the story of Clarence Bledin, who, that's like I said, was rather pedestrian for a 20-year minor league career. And then <laughs> we were talking about him because he bit his own ass. <laughs> That is the like that is exactly what I wanted to accomplish when we started this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well, like Oyster Burns, Clarence Bledin, it is uh, Tim Hurst, like people that you just would not know about. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. Holy shit! That was just that was a slow burn. Oh, that was a slow and it burn. Was that just, one. Just the the dumbest climax. Yeah. <laughs> I love it so much. It was so stupid. It led nowhere. Yeah. But yep. it was awesome. Yep. Oh, fuck, man. All right. You're welcome. <laughs> Until next time, give us a review or whatever, a like and stuff. Mm. Fuck oh, it. Follow us on Twitter at Doing Baseball and Instagram at Doing.Baseball. Until next time. I am Sean. And I'm Eds. And we were doing the baseball. Thanks. Mm. Okay, bye. Bye.